sometime in the last year, I've taken something called Strengths Finders, where you're supposed to find out what your five biggest strengths are. And I read what my five biggest strengths were, and I kind of laughed because I thought, most people say these are my weaknesses. But one of them was competition. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about right there. Who knew? Who knew it was a strength, right? I mean, I've got a real problem with competition. I really do. Sometimes when I, I get really competitive and I start saying things, my mouth starts moving, particularly at officials and umpires and referees and that kind of stuff. My wife is also pretty competitive. We were sort of talking yesterday about our problems competing with each other. And so that usually doesn't end up going well for our marriage. And so competition usually seems to sort of leave a path of destruction for me. I'll give you a great story. It's sort of an insight into child, Tim. I've been this way for as long as I can remember. In, in fifth grade, I was in a class, and I was, I was either the best student or the second best student in this class. The other girl was Sarah Green, and she and I were very competitive with each other. There was this thing that the teacher gave out called Super Student, and she was the first one to get it, and I was the first one to get it twice, and we always rubbed these things in on each other. We were always fighting back and forth to be the best student in the class. And so uh, my competitive nature, I always wanted to be better than her, And one day I realized that there was one place that she was clearly better than me at. Conduct. Now back in the day when I was in elementary school, they gave a grade for conduct. It didn't just say whether or not you behaved, but there was actually a grade. And it was always by far my lowest grade. I would typically get a lot of A's and then a C in conduct. In fact, in fifth grade, I do remember one time back in Louisiana when the teacher would leave the classroom. still seems crazy to me that teachers would leave the classroom, but when the teacher would leave the classroom, they would choose one responsible student to go and stand in front of the class and take names. Did you ever have that happen to you before? Where if you talked, if you made a noise, if you caused a disruption while the teacher was gone, they'd write your name on the board and you'd be in trouble with the teacher when they came back? Well, there was one day in fifth grade that my name got written on the board and then all the way across the, ch- uh, the chalkboard were check marks, which each check mark meant one more disruption. And then there was a second line started. I had a problem behaving all the time in school. I was loud and all these kind of things. But Sarah was not. In fact, it occurred to me one Friday morning as I was getting ready for school that we got rewarded for behaving well that I never got this behavior award because every week my name ended up on the board for misbehaving. But Sarah's name was never on the board. And so one Friday morning, I can still remember it clear as day, as I was showering getting ready for school, it occurred to me that I could get her name on the board so that she would be as bad as me. And see, this particular quarter, she sat right in front of me, the desk right in front of me. And so it was my mission from the first minute of class to talk to her the entire day. It didn't matter to me if my name went up on the board. It was already up on the board from yesterday. But her name had never been on the board before. And so from the very start of class, I started talking to her talking to her and talking to her and talking to her, and she was just ignoring me, and I was getting really frustrated until finally I must have said something that interests her, because she just turned around in her seat and grabbed the back of her desk and started talking to me, and I just kept talking to her, and she kept talking to me until our teacher from behind us said, Tim and Sarah, go put your name on the board, and I was like, I got her, until I looked in her eye, and I saw tears start welling up. 
She had never been in trouble before in her life. This was actual serious trouble for her to have to go put her name on the board. And so what I thought was going to be such a victory for me, finally I got her. Finally I got her name on the board. Finally she was as bad as me. I had taken down the queen. She was crying and I felt bad. I felt terrible for what I had done. And I realized, and I have to continually realize this, that it probably should have occurred to me that instead of trying to take her down to my level, I could have just tried to raise myself to her level. But instead, I I had to be a bully. I had to be difficult. And my competitiveness overtook any rational sense of my mind. It never occurred to me to just behave to be equal with her. I had to tear her down. And I felt bad, and I still kind of feel bad to this day, although it does make for good sermon material when I'm 30, so there's that. But other than that, I just felt kind of bad. Today we're going to talk about the concept of denying yourself. Denying yourself. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 8. In this situation, in so many situations, when I get competitive, no matter what strengths finder says is my strength or not, a lot of times it's a weakness as well. When I get competitive, I want to take other people down instead of raising my level up. I don't want to deny myself. I want to deny other people. When I think about denying myself, the story, the story I think that jumped immediately to my mind was the story of Jackie Robinson in 1941, the baseball player. You want to talk about competitive? That man was an incredible athlete. He, he could have played probably in any sport that he wanted to, whether it was track and field, football, basketball, baseball. He could have done whatever he wanted. That, that boy was the best at whatever he did. But in 1941, of course, there had never been a black Major League Baseball player. And for whatever reason, he heads down the path of going to the Negro Leagues, choosing baseball, even though he couldn't play pro ball at its highest level, it seemed. But eventually, eventually, when he was about the age of 28 and playing for a few years, Branch Rickey, the general manager of the Dodgers, gave him a call and said, I want to sign you up for Major League Baseball to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Well, it was a big deal. This had never happened before. And, and it's not like it hadn't occurred before. The other general managers were colluding to make sure that no black players could play in Major League Baseball. They were out to get the black players. They were keeping them out. But Branch Rickey had a different vision, and he had a different kind of athlete as well. Not only was Jackie Robinson sure to be one of the 10 best players in the league when he got there, but his personality matched the profile that Branch Rickey was looking for. You see, Branch Rickey sat him down and he says, I know you're going to be a good ball player, Jackie. I know you're going to be great for the Dodgers. But my concern is, is that as soon as we put your name in the lineup and send you out to second base, there's going to be people in the stands calling your name. And they're not going to be cheering for you. They're going to be calling you harsh words, mean words. They're going to be talking about your family. They're going to, they're going to treat you like you're not even human. What are you going to do when someone does that to you, Jackie? Jackie says, I don't, I don't know. Do, do you want me to stand up to them? Do you want me to fight? Branch Rickey, Branch Rickey, the GM, says, no, Jackie, I don't need someone with the strength to fight people. I need someone with the strength not to fight when they want to. And so Jackie Robinson, he has this option. Can he just spend years taking abuse from people who are just mindless. Can he do that? Deny himself and think about the future of baseball? Or should he just go back to where it's comfortable in the Negro Leagues and people accept him for who he is? 
He chose, of course, in 1941 to deny himself, and I can't even imagine the names that he was called every time he'd go to a new city and take the ball field. I can't imagine the abuse that he took, but over and over and over in every city, the story was how mean the fans were towards him and how he continually turned to the other cheek. Because Jackie Robinson playing ball wasn't all about Jackie Robinson. He was not number one. Jackie Robinson was concerned with Frank Robinson to come after him. He was concerned with Ken Griffey Jr. He was concerned with the people that would come after him and play, play Major League Baseball with the same color skin that he had. He denied himself for the sake of the future. And the future is amazing. I mean, some of my favorite ballplayers growing up were black players. And had it not been for a guy like Jackie Robinson to deny himself over and over and over and set down his rights to fight back, to set down his rights to have his own word, to set down his rights to prove how much better he was than them, he set all that down for the sake of the future. That's a tremendous, tremendous accomplishment that he had. Denying himself, denying himself, setting aside his rights to do what he wanted to do. This is in a lot of ways what Jesus does as well. As particularly as we look this morning, what Jesus calls all Christianity to do, to deny ourselves. We're going to look at Mark chapter 8, and let me just walk you through the story a little bit. Sometimes before we actually get to the reading, something interesting happens that sort of colors our reading. And so I'm going to do that while you look up Mark chapter 8. It's going to be up on the screen as well. But if you start way back in verse 14, Jesus has just finished feeding the 4,000 people. And, and he uses this as an object lesson. And he turns to his disciples and he says, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples, bright as they are, say, uh, Yeast of the Pharisees? Are you, are you talking about not having enough to, bread to eat? Jesus says, seriously, guys, you were just right here. Did you see how many people I fed with nothing? You think, you think this is about whether or not I can feed people? I'm talking about the very essence of what's on the inside of people. The Pharisees, sure, the Pharisees, they look really holy, but look on the inside of what makes them what they are. Look on the inside. Their yeast is spoiled. And so even they walk around talking like they're holy, they're spoiled all the way through. Just then, at that moment, as he finishes telling that story, well, let me get to this first. He says in verse 18, as he's talking about the yeast, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Just as soon as Jesus says this, a blind man comes in, almost providentially, so that we can have sort of an object lesson about what it means to have eyes and not see. The blind man comes in and he says, he says Jesus, I want you to heal me. And, and Jesus says, can you see anything? He says, yes, I, I can see a little bit. Whenever I open my eyes, the blind man says, I see what looks like trees walking past me, moving around in the wind. Well, what he was talking about was people. There was just enough light that he could see shadows, just enough vision that he could perceive that stuff was around him. Awful similar to how the disciples were. Just enough, they knew just enough of Jesus that they could perceive what was happening around them without actually identifying what was truly happening. And so Jesus does this great thing. He goes ahead, he gives them his sight, and the Gospel of Mark says his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. 
It's as if we're being set up here to say, listen, something's going to happen, and Jesus is wanting you to see clearly what is happening. Peter here is going to see something, but he doesn't see it clearly. Jesus begins, who do people say that I am? They had great responses. John the Baptist, Elijah, some say that you're a prophet. Oh, you see, the people around had just enough vision to see something special was happening with Jesus. No one was like, when they asked, no one was talking, oh, you're that carpenter guy from Nazareth. They were picking out the big guns. I mean, if you're like Elijah, if you're like John the Baptist, if you're like a prophet, people know that something special is happening in Jesus. Even people that have no faith in him can see that Jesus is a special guy. They get it to a point. Well, all right, those are good answers, Jesus thinks. What about you all, 12 disciples who've been dropped everything and followed me here? Who do you all say that I am? Peter, he has big mouth, he's the leader, he steps in and he says, well, duh, you're the Messiah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Jesus is very pleased. He's got one again who sees. He thinks that he has eyes to see. He says he's the Messiah. So now Jesus is going to explain to him what the Messiah is and what the Messiah does. Now, Peter has an understanding of who the Messiah is. The Messiah is the one who is going to come as a conqueror, a war hero. He's going to lead Israel to defeat all the powers of this world so that Israel can be the best nation in the world, a city on a hill for everyone to see, and the whole world will decide, yes, Israel is so great, that's how we're going to be as a nation. That is what everyone in Israel thought the Messiah was going to be. Everyone, it turns out, except the Messiah himself. He had a different plan, and this is how his plan goes. We're going to read from verse 31 through verse 38 in Mark chapter 8. If you found it, would you follow along? It's up on the screen as well. And would you join me in standing as we honor God's word this morning? Again, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He, referring to Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when the disciples turned and looked at, or when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man even give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. You may be seated. You see, Peter had his understanding of the Messiah as a warrior. 
Peter declares that he's the Messiah. And what Peter's saying in his mind is, I'm ready for, to fight for you, Jesus. I'm ready to be in your army. I'm ready to take command. I'm ready to do God's work of making Israel the best nation in the world. I am ready. And so when Peter's response is, or when Jesus' response is, great, you've seen that I'm Messiah. Now, my calling, my calling is to go to the cross. I have to suffer. I have to be put to death. The people in charge around here are going to kill me. Well, that's an inversion of what Peter thought was going to happen. Peter thought Jesus was going to be the one with the biggest sword telling people what to do and where to go. And here, Jesus is saying the exact opposite. Rather than taking command, rather than taking control, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give myself up. I'm going to hand myself over. I'm going to deny myself and my rights. Peter says, no. Peter, it says, rebukes him. He puts him back. No, 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 Jesus, one who I've just called Messiah. No, 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 no. You don't understand what it means now that you're the Messiah. I know you're the Messiah, but you don't get it, all right? Let me tell you how this goes about. It says that Jesus, in return, rebukes Peter back. Get behind me, Satan. Wow, those are harsh words. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You may remember that Jesus has had this option before. Peter here is saying, you can't go to the cross. You must take power the way this world takes power. You remember that when Jesus went into the wilderness with Satan, that Satan also offered him the opportunity to be king of this world without going to the cross. This opportunity has already been given to Jesus by Satan himself. Remember when he climbed to the top of the kingdoms and looked down on the world and Satan said, all of this can be yours if you would just worship me. Well, here Peter's saying, no, 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 no. All of this can be yours if we just take it. And once again, Jesus hears that same word from Satan, you do not need the cross in order to be king of this world. It's the same temptation that Peter is now offering to him. And, Saint, and Jesus is saying, no, you're trying to deceive me in the same way that Satan has. It's as if Jesus is saying right here, just because you say with your mouth, just because you say with the mouth that I'm the Messiah, does not mean that you know me. It does not mean you know who I am. Peter here has just confessed that this is the Messiah. Peter has just said, you know, we talk about those verses, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, he is faithful and just, and will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's a great verse, but Jesus is saying, that's not enough. He's not happy with Peter. He calls him Satan. Having just said you are the Messiah is not enough. That's just a mental ascent. Jesus says there must be more, and so he begins to go into it, and he says this very famous word, if you are going to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You see, Peter has done the good work of saying, Jesus is Lord. But that hasn't done enough to make him a disciple of Jesus. In order to become a true disciple of Jesus, Jesus is saying, you must deny yourself, 
take up your cross and follow me. Now we know a lot about the cross. We know that Jesus dies there. We know that it was a political punishment for someone who wanted to, uh, to overthrow Rome and talked about any other kingdom being established. We know that it was gruesome and painful. We know that it caused uh, uh, you to stop breathing and eventually suffocate. We know that the blood pouring out of the bodies was immense. We know that the suffering was excruciating. So when we say that word, deny yourself and take up your cross, I don't know about you, but my mind immediately goes to taking up my cross. What does it mean to take up my cross? And we say all the time things like, well, I guess this is just my cross to bear. You immediately begin to think of that, but this week as I read this over and over and over, I was smacked in the face by the words right before it. Deny yourself. Well, it's easy because I don't have an actual cross that I'm going to hang on to sort of turn this into a metaphor, the taking up my cross and following Jesus. It's easy to just deduce that all the way down to just a metaphor. Oh, Jesus wants me to just sort of follow him. Okay, I can do that. Oh, it's not always going to be easy. That, I get that. But how about these very clear and plain words right before it? Deny yourself. That's a difficult call. It's a difficult call. This week, uh, I asked on Facebook, a lot of you in this room answered, what's the one thing that you couldn't live without? What is the one thing you couldn't deny yourself? And there were some tremendous answers that came through. The most common one was family. That was the most common one, family. Jing says food. All right. It's true though, right? We're just being real. Danny in the back said technology. I live with him. That's definitely true. All these things that people say, you begin to examine your life and you think about the things that you sort of intertwine yourself with. And, and the reality is, if you're honest, what's that one thing that you would deny yourself? It's hard to boil it down to one thing. We intertwine ourselves with so many things and we become increasingly reliant. And listen, I'm not wagging my finger at anyone here. I'm right with you. We become so reliant on the things that just produce noise in our world, these things that are non-essential that, that just grab us and they sort of own us. And it becomes increasingly difficult, even at a time like Lent, to say, what's something I'm going to give up? I surely can't make it 40 days without chocolate. What am I going to give up? I, I mean, for me, I can't make it 40 days without Diet Coke, right? Well, these things, we just sort of entwine our lives around them, you know? And it becomes even difficult to sort of say, well, I'm going to deny myself that even for just a season of life. We intertwine ourselves with these things. Family's another one. Family is the most tremendous gift that you can possibly have. What, what's better than having a family, you know? But even that sort of begins to take control and, and sometimes becomes an excuse for why we can't do things or all that kind of stuff, or we use it as an excuse. Family is a sacred and wonderful thing. But what does it mean when Jesus says to deny yourself? Does it even mean that? Does it even mean family? Deny yourself is a difficult concept. It's a difficult thing. Where do you even start to begin to deny yourself. Where does that even begin? Well, there's a verse that Debbie's going to put up for us from Galatians that the Apostle Paul wrote. And for me, this may not do anything for you today, but it kind of gave me the shivers when I read it this week. 
But the cross, the cross is about dying to ourselves. And I began to think as I read this that we're no more free ever than after we die, right? There's no obligations. There's no schedule. There's no place to go. There's no next thing to do. No one's counting on anything for you. When you die, you just go. And Jesus is calling us here very much to deny ourselves and take up and follow him to the cross, to put an end to this, to whatever we are, the overscheduled, the exhausted, the overbooked, the over-reliant self, and sort of give ourselves 100% to him, to make the cross the very center of our lives, to deny ourselves all the things that we sort of want so that we can be free. And this freedom that Paul talks about here is, you, my brothers, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Do not use your freedom to indulge. Do not use your freedom to indulge. Is that what denying ourselves looks like? That when we follow Jesus, he gives us this freedom and we deny the opportunity with that freedom to just indulge, to take whatever we want, to make ourselves number one. It seems that this denying ourselves that Jesus talked about is more about the latter, that we give ourselves, put ourselves to the side, crucify ourselves with Christ so that we can serve one another in love. Imagine if we began to deny ourselves the foods that we like just for the sake of indulging ourselves, our family time just for the sake of indulging ourselves. We gave away our, our time with technology just for the sake of indulging ourselves. We gave away all these things just for the sake of indulging me. We denied ourselves things to just make me happy and instead used our freedom in Christ to serve one another in love. How would our family time look if it wasn't about me but it was about us? How would our times around the table look if it wasn't me, about me, but it was about us? How would our times with our friends be if we denied ourselves and made it about serving them? How would our life look if it quit being about me and started being about using the freedom in denying ourselves to serve others? I saw today, just this morning, it seems perfect way to sort of end this, I saw someone say, if you want to be happy, you can be happy. But if you want to have joy, you've got to have Jesus. I think that's mostly true. And I think that true joy isn't found when you're doing anything but denying yourself. If all of life is about indulging yourself, if all of life is about chasing what I want, if all of life is about just confessing that Jesus is Lord and thinking that's good enough, and then spending my life making it about me? There's not much joy to be found in that. There's just about hoping that something new comes along to keep my attention. And if it keeps my attention, then I'm happy for the moment. But denying myself and putting the cross in the center of my life, and having that stability and that focus, that sort of thing brings about joy. I, I can't explain it to you, except to say that this is the same Jesus who instead of taking the sword and demanded that this world become his kingdom, inverted his kingdom and died so that he could be raised to life with God.
Things don't always make sense when you follow Jesus as far as the world goes. But I swear to you that, that joy is found when you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. That that's where true joy comes from. But we first have to make the audacious step to step beyond Peter here and say, you know, it's no longer good enough to just know that Jesus is the Messiah. It's no longer good enough. The one who says that Jesus Messiah is the Messiah here is the one who is called Satan. It's no longer good enough to just say Jesus is Lord. Now is the time, and perhaps this Lent season is the perfect time, to say, you know what? I'm no longer just going to flap my gums about Jesus being the Lord, but I'm going to push myself to the side so that there's more room for Jesus in my life. And the more I push to the side and the more room for Jesus there is in my life, the more opportunity I'll have to serve one another in love. And I promise you this, I can't explain it to you, but I promise you this, the more you push yourself to the side and put the cross in the center and serve one another in love, the more joy there's going to be in life. This is an inverted kingdom. It's backwards. It's different. It doesn't think the way the world thinks but I still haven't met that first person that's given themselves entirely to Christ and hasn't said that this was absolutely true. My prayer for you, my prayer for you today is that you find joy by denying yourself the things that are tempting to indulge in and that Jesus instead shines through you and brings you the joy that you hope that indulgences brings you. Lamar, can we sing a final song today? Of course, the altar's open if anyone wants to sort of say a prayer. Maybe there's something that, that God has particularly put on your heart to deny yourself. Maybe it's a whole life turn. Maybe there's something, uh, something just weighing on your heart. Maybe there's someone weighing on your heart. But this altar is open as the band plays. But if there's nothing, if this is you, if you've denied yourself, if it's all about him, praise God. Sing this song with all of your heart and with all joy as a response to God, saying, I thank you for the work that you've done in my life and the joy that you've given my heart. Let's sing this final song together. Would you stand with me as we say a final prayer today? God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for your love that, that has just moved through their lives, God. We know how much you love each and every person here. And God, sometimes reading the Bible and hearing what you have to say is hard. Sometimes it's tough to see that you say, deny ourselves. But God, I ask that you make out of us powerful disciples of Christ. Teach us to walk in your footsteps. Teach us to live the life that you lived. Teach us to, to move away from the things that hinder and help us to press on into your spirit, going where you go and doing what you do. God, we so badly want to be the disciples you've called us to be. And I thank you that you're already working on making us just that. In your name we pray, amen. You are dismissed. Go from this place in his peace and love.